Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yes, uh, let's go ahead and begin our class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. And today as we launch into a new uh, quarter to study a new topic, Glimpses of God, and we are, are going to be taking our finite minds and reaching out toward you, the infinite one. And we pray that you will uh, reach down toward us and enlighten our minds and and let us draw near to you and see perspectives and insights of your character and your and your nature that uh, will transform us to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number one in our new quarterly, the uh, entitled Glimpses of God. If uh, anybody uh, doesn't have the new quarterly, then you can pick those up at the at the church or at the ABC. Um, we finished our last uh, lesson last week in the old quarterly. And uh, the title this week is called The Triune God. The Triune God. Anybody right from the get-go have any questions about that topic? He says, what's the difference between triune and trinity? I don't think there is a difference. And have you heard questions about this? Have you heard a resurgence in our church over the last few years of people arguing and questioning the, the doctrine of the trinity? Have you heard that? Yes, I've heard this as well, and I've I've received emails, I've received literature handouts on this, and so I thought we should go through this today. Here are the arguments, some of the arguments that I've heard. Most of them are declaratives, um, but I've heard there is no Trinity, Jesus is not fully God, Jesus is a created being, Jesus came after the Father at some time, the Holy Spirit is only God's Spirit, an extension of the Father. The word Trinity doesn't exist in Scripture. Uh, The Trinity is a Roman Catholic belief. Uh, The Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. The Trinity was was infused into Christianity from paganism, specifically Babylon. And as I I looked at these arguments, I asked the question, first off, what evidence evidence for all these allegations might there be? And I realized that the, the approach we take in our class is the truth can always afford to be fair. And we lose nothing by close investigation. And so we have nothing to lose by asking questions and investigating the evidence and see where the evidence leads. And so I looked at the evidence that uh, was supporting these various documents that I was receiving, and it really broke down into three categories, the evidence. And the evidence were quotations from theologians who wrote statements that the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. So there was statement after statement from this theologian, that theologian, this theologian, that you won't find the Trinity in the Bible. Okay, that's kind of one level of, of support for this attack. Next was documentation from history that certain religious groups, certain Christian groups, never taught the Trinity. So far, this, this evidence is fairly weak, in my opinion. Uh, you've got the opinions of theologians. You've got a group of Christians in various times in history that didn't teach the Trinity. And then statements from history... Um, that the Trinity was not uh, understood or taught by anyone. So, um, oh, no, excuse me, statements from history that certain pagan religions, excuse me, certain pagan religions taught a Trinity. So this is the, if you break it down, as I looked at all the evidence that was given to me, it was lots of theologians throughout history, various times and places, taught there's no Trinity, that there are historical documentation that certain pagan sects taught a Trinity, and that um, documentation from history that certain Christian groups didn't treat, teach a, didn't teach it a Trinity. That's really kind of very weak evidence, the way I look at it. So I thought maybe we should do the other and see if there's actually evidence for the Trinity and see 
what evidence we have and, and maybe why this, this um, intensity is rising here at the end of time to undercut the, the divinity of, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as a trinity, as a union. So the first question then seems to me is, what about Christ? Is Christ fully God, equal totally in all capacity with the Father, or is he somehow a demigod, somehow either a created being or a, a, a subservient, uh, inferior God in some way to the Father? And at this Christmas season, is there any Bible text that pops into mind that might lead us into our discussion? Maybe out of Isaiah? Yeah? What? Yes. He's the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. There you go, Isaiah 9, 6. But, but she left out a critical piece of that. For unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, a Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, here we have a Bible text in the Old Testament that's telling us that there's, gonna, there's a child that is going to be born. And this child that is going to be born is going to be a Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Counselor. Now, who do we normally refer to as the Counselor? And who do we normally refer to as the everlasting Father? The Father. But but this text is telling us that this child will be called all of these things. So we're having an Old Testament reference to an idea that a child will be born who will be God. Fully. And, and, and I think these names are there because he will be fully equal to the God uh, uh, that we serve. I mean, it's totally God. This is what I'm thinking the text is saying. What do you think? Now, that text alone shouldn't be sufficient. We shouldn't build uh, a, a doctrine this, this significant on one text. But I think it gives us a, a place to start, a foundation. Say, okay, this is laying a, a question in our mind. There's a child that, that the Bible calls God. Well, is there other evidence for that? John. Thank you. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Notice this first passage. We have the Word referenced as He. He, the Word, was with God. So we have the Word and God, two separate individualities or identities here being identified. And the Word was God. We keep going. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So whoever this He is is with God from the beginning, suggesting there's no time that he wasn't with God, and he's the creator. He was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So here we have now this God who was from the beginning, with the Father, who created, who came into the world. Seems like that supports our Isaiah text, that we have a child that's going to be born that's fully God. It says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side and has made him known. Still out of John chapter 1, that's verse 18. And so we've gotten two passages now from Scripture that to me are suggesting quite directly that Jesus was with God from the very beginning. Jesus has a creative power. Jesus will be called mighty God, everlasting Father, Counselor, uh, that we have a child born who's God. Did you hear those things, or do you think I'm reading into it? No, yeah. Also, Hebrews one. Hebrews one, where it talks about him creating the worlds. And that God said, you know, worship him, and, and only God. Well, read it to us, Margaret. 
Hebrews 1, I think it's verses 2 and 3. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. And then it says, you, you are my son today, I become your father. I will be your father, he will be my son. And then again, when God brings his first, firstborn into the world, says that all angels worship him. And okay. only God is to be worshipped. So here's, here she's brought out of, uh, again, Hebrews chapter 1, where we have the Son being the, the member of the Godhead through whom all things were created, created the universe, and later the angels are instructed to worship him. But we're only to worship God. So again, further evidence that Christ is God. I like that one. That's very good. Uh, as far as his creatorship, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for, all, uh, for by him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, all, um, all things created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Are we, are we making a case that Jesus is fully God here? At his trial, he was asked right out, are you the son of God? And he didn't deny it. And if he if he had any occasion to deny that he was the son of God, it would have been at his trial. Now the people the people who are anti yeah the people who are anti Trinitarian, as I understand it, don't deny Jesus is the Son of God. They just deny he's God. <laughs> that he's the Son of God. Meaning, I think the the views that I've heard would be something, there are two views. One, Jesus was the first created being by God, like Lucifer and the rest of us created beings. And there's another version, that Jesus was the first being that was born of the Father. And so he is the Father's Son, like your child is your son. So he is of divine substance, but not original in the beginning. So there's another version that goes that way. Yes. Well, how about I and my father are one? Yes. Does that mean one family? We're just the same family? or you know? Well, this is why I think that these texts are important for us to look at. Because certainly I wouldn't call, you know, my son wouldn't be called the father, the counselor, the mighty God. So I think that the, the, the passages of Scripture are going to undercut some of these perspectives as we continue to go through them. I think the Father and I are one. Some could argue, well, we're one in purpose, which they are. Um, well, let's, let's look at some more text. First John. A body hast thou created me. You know, in other words, I have a body, but I didn't exist before my body and my breath came together. See, this is a great point. This is, I think, you're bringing up a text that causes confusion for a lot of people. This text in Hebrews, a body that has created me, when it's referring to Christ's incarnation. Christ's mission from heaven to earth to save man, there was a human body prepared for him to do the mission that he had to do on earth. That doesn't, necess- that, that doesn't necessarily mean that sometime in, in eternity past that God created Christ after God was already there. But some people would read it that way, but I think that the text you're referring to a body prepared for me was the human body for his incarnation, for his mission on earth to save mankind. Um, Yes, yes. Jesus' baptism, uh, Matthew 3, Luke 3 and Mark 1, uh, says that the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and then the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. Yes, so he's talking about the baptism, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, the anti-Trinitarians, a group of them would not argue that. They would say, yes, he is God's Son, he's just not fully God. 
And so I don't, I don't think anybody really argues that Jesus was God's son. The question is, what does that make him? Fully God or less than God? In Revelation 19, it talks about his, his name is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And then in verse um, 16, he is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yeah, that's another good one, isn't it? King of kings and Lord of lords. And so uh, Margaret mentioned the fact that angels are called to worship him. Okay, King of kings, Lord of lords, another good evidence. How about the disciples? The disciples. We have in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas saying to Jesus, quote, my Lord and my God. So we have an apostle here recognizing Jesus as God. Or 1 John 5, 20. This is uh, 1 John 5, 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even the Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So we have John, if we value John's testimony, we believe John was speaking truth, John makes the declarative that Jesus is the true God. Yes? What do we do with John 17.3? John 17.3, this is life eternal, they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and thou sent. What do we do with that? He supports your argument. Yeah, you think it supports my argument because well, Christ Himself is, is equating eternal life with knowing God and Christ. I mean, is there is there a difference? Yeah, I see. I see that, and I also see that in John seventeen, do we have Christ's divinity praying to the Father? Or do we have Christ's humanity supplicating before the cross? His human nature uh, reaching out to the Father. And this is another place where people get confused because Christ was such a good job of being human that as a human, he supplicated as a human. He reached out to his father as a human. He got hungry as a human. He got tired as a human. And so we often see him in his journey on earth uh, uh, going through that process of restoring mankind in his humanity, and then we make wrong conclusions about his divinity based on what we see him doing in his humanity. Yes, uh, somebody back there had a hand in the back? No? Yes, okay, uh, Wendell. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is listed or described as being the day of the Lord. It's not the, the day of the Father. It's not the day of the, of the Holy Spirit. It's the day of the Lord. And it's described as being the day of the Lord, and it's, it's He, it's like the Son of God, who's coming back. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's, that's another. See, I love this because everybody has a database, and you're all pulling from your database, and we're sharing together to pull out all this inform- information from Scripture. And several of these I, I didn't even think of, and I love this because it's adding a richer layer to what we're building. Yes? Uh, there are a couple of verses in John uh, John 10.30 was quoted a little earlier that says, I and my Father are one. Mm-hmm. But the next verse gives testimony to what the Jews knew that meant. It says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. Right. That's he was claiming equality with God. And then the other one is uh, John 8.58, uh, uh, where he says, before Abraham was, uh, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying because in the next verse, they take up stones again. Right. I am that I am, God spoke at Sinai to, to Moses. And so when he says, I am, that's exactly what he was saying. I am 
the, 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 the one. Yes. Genesis one twenty six. Yes, we're going to get to that in a minute when we get to the Old Testament. Thank you. Um, yeah, because we're going to, we're going to, the Old Testament we want to look at, because there's another argument that people make that the Old Testament doesn't teach Trinity. Genesis 126, as you're pointing out, is an important text for us to look at. Yes. What about where he says, I, when I, I can lay down my life and I can raise it up again? Uh, this is another powerful one. Uh, I, I, no one can take my life from me. I can lay down my life and I can take it up again. How many of you can say that? So this is quite powerful. Yes. On the other hand, he called himself the son of man. He called himself the son of man. And this is, again, where people get confusion because he was unique. He was fully God and fully man. And on his journey on earth, he is going through the journey as a human being, overcoming where we couldn't overcome, restoring where we couldn't restore, healing what we couldn't heal. And we will see his expressions as a man. And, and, and we have to be careful not to infer something about his humanity back toward his divinity. Yes. Was he fully man before he was born? On earth? No. No, no, no. He became incarnate uh, in the womb of, of Mary. He existed as a divine entity, but not as a human. That's correct. Even though he did manifest himself apparently as a human being prior to his incarnation. Anybody remember that? With Abraham. He came down and appeared in the form of a human being, but he wasn't incarnate at that time. He did not take humanity upon himself. People who say he is not divine, are they saying that his divinity was compromised by his humanity? No, what I think they're saying is, as I said, that he is a lesser being than the Father. He either didn't exist through all time, eternity past, he came sometime later after the Father, or he has less powers, less prerogatives, less abilities, less divinity, somehow diminished, subservient in some way less than the Father. That's what they mean in his divinity, not his humanity. Yes? The concluding verse of Jude talks about to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There we have another great one. Yeah. Yeah, no, see, there, there's lots of good texts. Here's another one here. Is this helpful here? Uh, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So again, Philippians chapter 2 talking about him who was equal with God, didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped. Uh, so he had, it's talking about that equality he had, yes. What do we do with Mark 12, where a scribe comes to Christ and says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, God is one. And worship him and love him with all your heart and mind. And the scribe says, you have said well. There's one God, love him with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. What do we do with that? We understand it. That's, that's what we're trying to understand now. Is that one the one of a singularity, or is that one of a a, a, a tripartite one? How do we know? Um, I, I don't find I don't find any disparity in that statement. And we're going to come back into the Old Testament in a moment when the Deuteronomy text, um, "Our God is one." Deuteronomy, um, and it's in the lesson. We're going to come to that in a second. You're going to see how how the. But I want to read you a couple of statements from one of the founders of the Adventist Church. Uh, this first one is found in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 34. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, in purpose, the only being that could enter into the counsels and purposes of God. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Um, then this one is out of um, Signs of the Times, November 27, 1893. 
The Jews had never before heard such words from human lips, and a convicting influence attended them. For it seemed that divinity flashed through humanity, as Jesus said, I and my Father are one. The words of Christ were full of deep meaning as he put forth the claim that he and the Father were of one substance, possessing the same attributes. Or seven Bible, uh, excuse me, um, the Great Controversy, page 495. Yet the Son of God was the acknowledged sovereign of heaven, one in power and authority with the Father. And then one more of the, from the founders and of the church and of our church, and then, and then we'll go back to comments. This is First Selected Messages, page 296. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's a quote from 1 John 1 4. Excuse me, from John 1 4. It is not physical life that is here specified, but immortality, the life which is exclusively the property of God. The Word who was with God and who was God had this life. Physical life is something we, each, which each individual receives, it is not eternal or immortal. For God, the life giver, takes it again. Man has no control over his life, but the life of Christ was unborrowed. No one can take this life from him. I lay it down of myself, John ten eighteen. He said, in him was life original. So in him was life original, unborrowed, underived. This life is not inherent in man. Yes. In John 5.26 it says that the Father gave that to him. When you look at it carefully, read John 5.26. This immortal life, eternal life, uh, the Father gave this to Christ. Take a look at the Bible there. Yeah, we're going to check that out. So somebody get, look up John 5.26 and read it to us. Uh, somebody else had a hand. He's the one that exhibits power that, 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 that we know uh, more than God. God didn't exhibit it where you could see it like Jesus did when he was here, like doing miracles and living a sinless life and doing all this this fantastic uh, stuff, delivering, uh, healing, uh, even raising the dead. Uh, but you don't see that, that God did that. You don't, you don't really read about manifestations of him doing that. So John 5.26, for the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Yeah. That's what it might be. Yeah. Has life in himself. What does it mean? Yes. He didn't, he didn't get it from anybody. Else. Does it mean that the, is this talking about his pre-existent state? Or is he talking about the Father has granted that Christ as, as the Savior of, of mankind can share his divine life, his immortal life with us? Yes. We have a quote somewhere that says that in, in a certain happening, divinity flashed through humanity. We're saying that the body of Christ, while being fully human, I mean, divinity don't flash through me. You know, it does still flow through Christ. It flashed through Christ because he was all divine as well as all human. And I think this verse in John, John 5, the Father has given life um, to the Son, of life in himself. I think that's talking about in this body that was created, as he created the body, he created it to be able to raise itself up. Let, let's see if we can't tighten this up a little bit. Because you know, okay, what, the what we have so far, between earth and heaven, he connects both. what we have so far is we have a list of texts from Scripture and from the founders of our church that are identifying Christ with divine attributes and divine abilities and preexistence and immortality. These are a bunch of texts. What does this say in the light of the great controversy? 
Does the light of the great controversy add any confirming or contradictory ideas to that, that view? The great controversy over God's character and law of love. Why would it be important for Jesus to be fully God? Would we lose anything if we would suggest that Jesus is not fully God? Well, uh, historically, our church has always understood these events, the, the great controversy, in the following light. And I'm going to read you some passages here. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 35. Little by little, Lucifer came to indulge the desire of self-exaltation. The scripture says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thine beauty. I will exalt my throne above the throne of God and the stars of God. Though uh, all, all his glory was from God, the mighty angel came to regard it as pertaining to himself, not content with his position. Though honored above the heavenly host, he ventured to covet homage due alone to the creator. Instead of seeking to make God supreme in the affections and allegiances of all created beings, it was his endeavor to secure their service and loyalty to himself. And coveting the glory which the infinite Father had invested in his Son, the Prince of Angels aspired to power that was the prerogative of Christ alone. Now the second, Patriarch of Proverbs, page 36, page later. To dispute the supremacy of the Son of God, thus impeaching the wisdom and love of the Creator, had become the purpose of the Prince of Angels. So notice, Lucifer is jealous of Christ. He He wants to dispute the supremacy of the Son of God, thus impeaching the wisdom of God. So he wants to attack God's wisdom, God's judgment, by... Uh, undermining the position of Christ in heaven. And then this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, uh, the next, next, or next paragraph, page 36. Uh, the Son of God shared the Father's throne, and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled them both. About the throne gathered holy angels, a vast unnumbered throng, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, and most, the most exalted angels as ministers and subjects rejoicing in the light that fell upon them from the presence of the deity. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the king declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into his purposes. And to him, it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of his will. And then the last quote is out of Great Controversy, page 495. In all the counsels of God, Christ was a participant, while Lucifer was not permitted to enter into the divine purposes. Why, question the mighty angel, should Christ have the supremacy? Why is he thus honored above Lucifer? Now, with these allegations in mind, does it give any insight into this argument over to the divinity of Christ? So answer the question, with, if you believe in a great controversy over the nature and character of God, if Christ is fully divine, what happens to all of Satan's allegations? Why was Lucifer not permitted in councils? He was a created being. He had nothing to offer, okay? if Christ is fully divine. However, if Christ is a created being, less than God, now what happens to Satan's allegations? They're all true. God is arbitrary. He's unfair. He plays favorites. He doesn't love his creatures equally. He's biased. He's bigoted. He's prejudiced. Because Christ chose, because Christ was chosen over Lucifer into the counsels of the Father. Not only that, it shows that God would throw his created beings under a bus to save himself. We hadn't got to that one yet. Thank you so much. But that was the next allegation. Because there's another series of allegations, and I wanted to, to throw those, those at you. So first off, I want to suggest to you um, that if Christ is fully God, then the conclusions of Lucifer are all false. If he's not fully God, then, those, then the, these first allegations 
So we could conclude that those who are arguing that Christ is not fully God are ignorantly supporting Satan's attack against the divine character. We can make this argument. And so what other problems exist? Russell just said it, that God is selfish. That we learn of God, if Christ is not fully God, then we learn that God is willing to sacrifice a creature to protect himself, but he's not willing to sacrifice himself. And again, our church has understood this. Here's a couple of quotes. February, uh, Review and Herald, February 18, 1890. Satan had accused God of requiring self-denial of the angels while he knew nothing of what it meant himself and when he would not himself make any self-sacrifice for others. This was the accusation that Satan made against God in heaven. Christ came to the world to meet these false accusations and to reveal the Father. In Signs of the Times, February 13, 1893. In the work of creation, Christ was with God. He was one with God, equal with him, the brightness of, the, of his glory, the express image of his person, the representat- representative of the Father. He alone, the creator of man, could be his Savior. No angel of heaven could reveal the Father to, sinner, to the sinner and win him back to allegiance to God. But Christ could manifest the Father's love, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So we have these, and then one more. Had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, unveiling his glory, excuse me, veiling his glory and humbling himself, that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have in the life of Christ would not have changed. In unfolding uh, in, would not have changed in unfolding its record of his own condescending grace. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God. In sight, in hearing, in effect, it is the voice and movements of the Father. That's letter 83, 1895. So, allegations of Satan in heaven are that God is selfish. If Christ is less than the Father, what happens to those allegations? they're sustained again. And so I think we are making a very strong argument, understanding through the lens of the great controversy over God's character, that this attack on the Trinity and this attack on the divinity of Christ is a subtle way that Satan seeks to cause people to doubt the goodness of God and, and, and attack his character. It continues to perpetu- uh, uh, perpetuate the, um, the arguments he began in heaven. Yes? Well, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it helps me think of it uh, in a way that help, it just improves my thinking of it. Right now on this earth, we have a substance that is presenting itself in three forms. We have ice, we have water, we have steam. We have a God who is one God, but presenting himself in three forms to us. And, and it, here's a common substance that we know of that we can see it's in three different forms. We know it's all really the same substance, but it's presenting itself to us in three totally different ways. And, and, and the people who argue against the Trinity would use your argument. They would use your argument to say there is not three gods, there's one God, and this one God is infinite, and this one God can choose to manifest himself in three ways. Just like water is still water, it's not three different substances. And so they would use that very argument to argue against the divine uh, the divine individuality of three individual beings. So the Trinity is not simply that they are one, one being that can manifest himself in three ways. The Trinity is that there are three separate individualities with three separate identities, three separate personalities, three separate beings that are in unity. That's what the Trinity doctrine is, yes. At the triple point of water, though, all three of those forms exist at the same time. The solid, the liquid, and the gas. Right, but it's still, again, those who would argue against the Trinity would argue that that supports their view that there's one God who can manifest himself in lots of different ways. 
because he's infinite in power and majesty. So he can manifest as a human, he can manifest as a spirit, he can, but he's still just one God, not three gods. They wouldn't make that argument. The doctrine of the Trinity are that there are three, get this, three separate individualities, three separate personalities, three separate beings with three separate, you know, identities. Triplets, he says. Okay? They would say exactly that Christ's humanity was praying to Christ's divinity, with what they would say. As a human being, he was praying to his own divine nature. Yes. Back in the back, saw hand. Yes. The confusion that I think we're coming up against is it goes back way before the the world was created. You know, when Christ came to this earth, he took on the form of man. And in heaven, perhaps, there was confusion because he took on the form of an angel. Yes, he did, and that's very well documented, and we're not going to go into that today because it's a whole hour-long discussion about the evidence that shows that Christ manifests as an angel, but there's a blog on my website, on our website, comingreason.com, what was, you know, was Christ a, 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 an angel or, or, or not? And, uh, and there's, it goes through all the evidence of the Old Testament scripture and New Testament showing that Christ was fully God, but manifested as an angel prior to his incarnation, yes. The comment of the lady over here, and the comment from my own brain, tell me that we believe that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The definition of the Trinity you were reading, I'm not sure I even agree with that. Does our church agree with all that? That there are three individualities? No, the, the definition of Trinity that you just spoke. That there are three personalities, three individualities? They all have different personalities? Yes. And then what else do you all have? Maybe, maybe we should continue on through the evidence. Three distinct beings. Three distinct beings that united in one. In one. How are they united? You know, that's a good question for a finite mind to ask of an infinite God, isn't it? <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't realize they were that separate. Well, let's keep going through the evidence and see. Jesus taught that there was a third member of the Godhead called the Comforter, the Counselor, or the Holy Spirit. John 14, if you love me, obey, my com- uh, obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will send another Counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The Word cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, you know, Christ is personifying the Holy Spirit here. He's not talking about... Jesus can't be the Holy Spirit because he had to go to heaven in order for the Holy Spirit to come down, right? Right, that's another... It's expedient for you that I leave. I don't leave the comforter won't come, so forth and so on. So there's a a difference between... They are distinct. Christ is praying to his Father... Right here, I will ask my Father, I, Christ, I'm a being, I'm an individual, will ask my Father to send the Comforter, and He will come. So we have three different, right in this one text, three different being identified. Um, the founders of our church put it this way, Desire of Ages 760, excuse me, 671. In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with joy and hope that inspired his own heart. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been to no avail. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of divine power. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. It is by the Spirit that the believer becomes the partaker of the divine nature, and then, let me, one more quote. 
Evangelism, page 615. There are three living persons in the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. And these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their effort to live a new life in Christ. Yes? Would we be safe to say that before the Holy Spirit came as a comforter, that that modified, uh, forget the exact phrase you read, would be uh, true of the Holy Spirit because he was here already. He absolutely was here already. And, I, and see, I, this is, again, how, we, how do we understand what we read? When Christ said, it's expedient for you that I go, if I don't go, the comforter won't come. But we read in the, in the Old Testament, um, um, Psalms, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was already at work on the earth. Okay, so what does it mean if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come? My understanding is, think this through, guys. If Jesus Christ, you were a disciple, an apostle. You understand Jesus has died, he's risen again. You understand he's God, he's here on earth. And we have a question about doctrine, like let's say the Trinity. What are we going to do? Are we going to go to our scriptures? Are we going to pray? Are we Are going to ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds? Are we going to invite the Holy Spirit into our heart? Or are we going to run to Jesus for an answer? I doubt it. If you look what they did, they ran to Jesus, and they ran to Jesus, and they ran to Jesus. They weren't actually doing the other. Righteousness could not be in heaven. Right. And so my suggestion is he left for the purpose of getting them to open their hearts and seek with a willing heart the Spirit. The Spirit was being poured out, but the Spirit dwells where? In the heart. And they don't seek the Spirit when, when they can just go to him and ask all their questions answered. I think that's part of what it meant. Yes. Um, Matthew twenty eight nineteen says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, some people can say, well, that's just God in three forms, but if they take that, if Jesus took the time to specify them by name, I mean, that just tells me, you know, it's just throughout the scriptures that there's three individual persons in the Godhead. Thank you. Yes, right here. Uh, going back to the confusion about uh, the individual entities being part of the trinity in the midst of the great controversy god created man and he created them different than he did the angels he created them to be a unity a family and i think that's a great representation of the oneness of god yes i I, thank you and uh, hopefully we'll have time to get there further but you're right um the two shall become one and there's some there's some there's a lesson we were we were a lesson book it says in corinthians to angels and to men god is trying to teach something about his individuality and his unity all at once Yes, back here. I would like to contribute Matthew 3.17. Go ahead. Uh, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Either they were separate or Jesus is a really good ventriloquist. So so yes, so here we have, again, evidence of two individualities, and then we've already given evidence of the divinity of Christ. Let's let's look at the Old Testament, because one of the arguments is that the Old Testament does not teach the, the plurality of God. It teaches a singularity. Okay, comment. I'm going to make one thing of the New Testament in Galatians 4, 6. Uh, maybe you remember the verse, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. In other words, Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And because they're all one, there's nothing wrong with that. I, mighty counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. I don't have a problem with that. Yes. To go along with that, when Jesus ascended, he blew, breathed on them or something and gave them the Holy Spirit. Okay. Comment? Yeah, um, when when some religions say to us, are you saved, have you been saved, 
they don't think the same thoughts that I think when I say I'm saved. And I think the same is true of the Trinity. I don't think, I think that word connotated Trinity defined by whoever made up, the, you know, whoever made the definition that we read the definition. I'm not sure our church can totally take that, that definition of Trinity and keep it. My husband and I are one. We got married. Uh, Barry's our son. We're three. But we don't have the same thoughts, the same ideas in our oneness. We are two, we are different personalities. But I don't believe that's true about the, the Trinity. I don't believe they have different ideas. I think they are totally one in the way they think and feel and their ideas about right and wrong and good and bad. They don't Never disagree with each other because their mindset is totally the same as far as so so are you arguing there are three individualities or is one individuality separate totally separate personalities that they have their own ways they go like we have three three separate personalities they don't have separate characters okay I, I their think character is all the character of love but do they have separate individualities ideas can they converse back and forth or is it simply they're talking to themselves in the mirror I think it's a lot talking to themselves in the mirror. I do okay, and, and this is what Romans would say. Every person be fully persuaded in their own minds because we are finite minds trying to understand an infinite God. And let, let's continue to progress through the evidence because I want to try to bring it together at the end. We've only got pieces of the puzzle so far, guys. And, and we're trying to really look at the whole piece, uh, whole puzzle picture. We only get pieces. No, I'm going to move on. Um, but we still only have pieces. I want to give the rest of the pieces to the puzzle, guys. Come on. Let's do the pieces. This is the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament because many will teach that the Old Testament doesn't teach the plurality of the Godhead, but a singularity instead of a plurality. Uh, the, one of the texts is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And this is probably the most famous text used to teach a singularity rather than a plurality. In the English, you'll notice in this passage, Deuteronomy 6.4, they use the word Lord and God. In the Hebrew, if I were to read this in the Hebrew, it would read like this. If I were to substitute the Hebrew names for Lord and God, it would read like this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Now, why is that significant? Because unlike the English language, in the Hebrew language, certain words possess singularity or plurality possessed inherent in the word. I guess we have some words like when we say um, your, or let's say, let's see, we have some words that are like they. They is a plural word. Y'all, okay. Y'all is a plural word, okay. Um, So in this context, in, in, in Hebrew, the word Elohim is actually a plurality. It's not a singularity by definition. And so one English, one English translation of this could read like this. The one is more than one, yet is one. Yahweh, singularity, our Elohim, plurality, is Yahweh, a singularity. So the one is more than one, is one is yet one. So, now further support for this, in this very passage, the word translated, um, the Lord, our God, uh, is one Lord. The word one, in Hebrew, there's two words for one. There's the word yachid, which means a singularity, one and only. And there's the word ichad, which means a plurality, more than one, a unity of, of more than one. And the word here is ichad, a plurality, a unity of more than one. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4.
So we have in the text, in the Old Testament, and if you understand the language straight in here, that God is more than one. Now, that goes back to the text in Genesis one twenty six mentioned earlier. Let us make man in our image. Not let me make man in my image. Okay? And that's the same, same Elohim used in um, Deuteronomy 6.4 is in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. Uh, the Lord said, Elohim said, let us make man in our image. Yes? Brother Botel, the text in 1 John 5, verse 7 and 8, will tell us this. Maybe can you read it? I have healing that. But you can read it in English. Tell us, John, 1 John 5, 7 and 8. It says, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Some versions will say, now there are three that testify, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you're a God fan or a Jesus fan or a Holy Spirit fan, uh, that's not going to save you to be one fan because you have different jobs to do. So uh, you could be maybe... uh, Whatever it is, and you just believe in God, but that, that's not going to save you. You need the Holy Spirit. You need all these. Uh, these are excellent points. In the setting of the great controversy, and guys, I really want you to get the lens of the great controversy on, because when you look through the lens of the great controversy, you're going to find things come into clarity. When we take isolated text here and isolated text there and argue this text against that text, that's where all this confusion arises. Uh, we're going to move on. We're going to move on, because there's so much to tell you guys. So I want more, give you some more evidence. It says, so here, we're still looking at the Old Testament. Does the Old Testament give evidence of the Trinity? I gave you the one text that, that is used most strongly to argue against the Trinity, and it actually teaches the Trinity. Here's out of Isaiah 42.1. And now the Sovereign Lord, which would be the Father, has sent me, the Son, with his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So in one text, we have all three referenced here, or... Uh, that was Isaiah, excuse me, 48, 16. Um, here's Isaiah 42, 1. Here is my, my referring to the Father, servant referring to the Son. Here is my servant, who I, the Father, uphold my, the Father, chosen one, my chosen one, the Son, in whom I delight. I, the Father, will put my spirit on him, the Son, and he will bring justice to the nations. So again, we have the Old Testament teaching the plurality of the Godhead. So we need to see God as a Redeemer? Of course God is our Redeemer. What's it say in Romans chapter 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? No, he is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. In addition to, so the Father is interceding for us. And earlier in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. It, it was God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. You're going to find, as we pull these pieces together in setting the great controversy, there is total unity amongst the Godhead. All three individual beings with total uh, uh, equality and substance and, and, and abilities working together for our redemption. Yes? The question is, who, whom does the word us refer to when God says, let us make man after our likeness, after our image? And Alan White writes, um, and the father said to his son, let us make man after our image. So there's two beings there saying this. Right. That's yes. what Alan White confirms. Uh, it makes sense to me that there's the, the Godhead is more than one. And then here's another one, Proverbs 8.30. Then I, Christ, was the craftsman, then I, Christ, was the craftsman at his 
side, the Father's side. I, the Son, was filled with delight daily, day after day, rejoicing always in His, the Father's presence, rejoicing in His, the Father's whole world, and delighting in mankind. So again, we have Old Testament texts that clearly, if you read the text, there's more than one individuality going on here. Didn't God also say to, was that Isaiah, who will go for us? Yeah, who will go for us, yeah. Now, the, the, for me though, all this evidence I've given you, the most compelling evidence for me of the, of, the, of the Trinity is the nature of God himself. The Bible tells us God is love. love. And the Bible tells us love is not self-seeking. Okay? What that tells us is then if love is not self-seeking, then love is other-centered, outward-moving. Okay? That kind of love, there's a Michael W. Smith song, love is not love until you give it away. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Uh, this is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for our, our brothers. Um, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. The nature of God is to give. That cannot exist in a singularity. And if there's a time in the past where God existed in a the singularity, then he doesn't have anyone to give to. But an eternal pre-existent God with, of, of a trinity, the Father is loving the Son, who's in spirit, who's loving the, they're all three constantly giving to each other in a state of love. God is love. It's a state of being. Yes? Proverbs 30, verse 4, then it says, What is his name and the name of the Son? Tell me if you know. There were the talks about God and his Son. But I don't see the Spirit here as a participant in creation. How about Genesis 1 and the Spirit moved on the face of the deep? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also Hebrews 1 verse 2. It is His Spirit, God's Spirit. Mm-hmm. Christ. <coughs> yes, and... The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, in, in going back to the New Testament, that I will send the Comforter, I will be with you. Yes, through the Comforter. He's with us, isn't he? Okay, so we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some people are uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. There's another attack. Um, so we have people who, that will uh, suggest Christ wasn't fully divine. And that then, in my opinion, seeing the great controversy, clearly undercuts God's character. And then we have others who see God and the Son as fine. So we don't have a trinity, we have a dyad. And the Holy Spirit is just w- either one of their spirits. It's not an individual person of the of the of the Godhead. Yes, Christ, however, did refer to him as I read earlier that the Comforter, as an individual, and gave the individual identity. He will come and he will do these things. Yes, he didn't say I will send my Spirit. My Spirit will do these things in you. What would it say about the Trinity if two members can make a decision without the other? But they can. Anyone can make a decision without the other. Two members of the Trinity would would decide to make. They're individuals. They're individuals. They have individuality. Any one of them can make a decision without the other one if they want. They have individuality. But they don't choose to. Yes, but they don't choose to. But they could. They have individuality. They're not robots. They're not, they're not slaves. They're not tied together unwillingly. Yes. Let us not presume that they can at any time disagree. In a, heaven is perfect. So they're in mm. perfect agreeance on anything. So the whole... Oh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. <laughs> oh. Wow. There was, there was, uh, if you read the story of redemption, in the story of redemption, once man sinned, there was uh, a disagreement between the father and son, where the father did not want to give up his son. 
and the son pled with the father to come. Some misinterpret this through the lens of paganism as the father is unloving and the son needed to plead with him to get him to let him go. The reality was this, guys, fathers and sons in the room. The father loved his son so much, he didn't want the son to come and do it. He wanted to come himself. And they were arguing which one was going to come and be the sacrifice. Christ said, no, I'll go. Father said, no, I'll go. No, I can't let you go, son. I'm going to go. So there was never a disagreement on whether they were going to save man. But each one being that loving, think that through. Can you see that kind of a disagreement that each one of them wanted to be the one to sacrifice themselves rather than have the other sacrifice for them? Can you not see that in your own human love with somebody you love? That somebody's going to take and go into harm's way and give their life for you? Go, no, I'll do it. Let you stay. So that, again, to me, is powerful argument, again, for the individuality of the Godhead. Yes? We talk about the Father and Son in the plan of salvation, and the Holy Spirit is not pictured there in that plan of salvation that I've seen. However, in my mind, I cannot see that there would ever be a disagreement between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that they would not all participate in in a complete unity. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, the Father had sacrificed and the Holy Spirit had sacrificed. Absolutely. They all did. That's right. There's no question about it. Um, I think also confusion arises because in the infinite wisdom of God, the various members of the Godhead have elected in their voluntary way to manifest and participate in their interaction with creation in different roles. My view is that all members of the Godhead could equally create All members of the Godhead could equally do what any other member of the Godhead could do, but they chose to participate in different ways. And the Father seems to be the source of all that is good, and the Son seems to be the medium or mediator uh, or advocate or conduit through which the Father achieves and acts out his purposes. And the Holy Spirit is the actualizer which applies what the Father and Son have achieved. And so we find God is in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, Jesus' work on earth was acted out through depending upon his Father's strength. But after his mission is complete, the Holy Spirit applies what Christ has achieved to our hearts. And so we see the three, met, the three different roles that they're taking in their unity, but all harmonized in one purpose. And any of the other three, as we read earlier, if the Father would have come instead of the Son, everything we see in the life of the Son would have been exactly the same. Any one of them could have done it. And sometimes because they do take different roles in our interaction with their finite beings, we can sometimes might diminish the abilities or, or attributes of one or the other. And I got to jump to Thursday's lesson. We only have a couple of minutes left. And I wanted to jump to Thursday's lesson because Thursday had a couple of interesting things. It says, of special importance in the context of the deity of Christ, if Christ were not fully God, then all we have in the Lord is the Lord shifting the punishment of our sins from one party to another as opposed to taking them upon himself. The whole point of the gospel is that it was God himself on the cross bearing the sins of the world. Anything short of this would denude the atonement of everything that made it so powerful and effective. Think about it. If Jesus were merely a created being and not fully God, how could he as a creature bear God's full wrath against sin? What created being, no matter how exalted, could save humanity from the violations of God's holy law? And I just want to affirm, first off, the quarterly for teaching the Trinity, because I think that's right. But as I read this, I see them teaching it through the lens of an imposed imperial law system. God imposes law, God must impose punishment, and now they're teaching this entire distortion based on accepting uh, God's law as an imposed law. 
but um, several several problems with the thinking that I read here as I, as I was reading it. Um, they talk about if Christ were not fully God, then all we have is the Lord shifting the punishment from our sins from one party to another as opposed to taking it upon himself. And it says, uh, first off, this assumption requires sins have to be punished. Become God becomes the punisher of sin. Punishment is still shifted from one being to another in their thing here. It's just not shifted from one sinful being to another. It's shifted from a sinful being to a sinless being and then punished in the sinless being. And the focus is not our condition that is out of harmony with God and his design, but the focus becomes our behavior, our crimes, our sins, and God's attitude towards those behaviors, which is one of wrath, which must be appeased. And so, um, here's, a, here's a quote from um, Tsar of Ages 761. In the opening of the Great Controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that if the law should be broken, it would be possible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And then the quote we read last week about how the, how the sacrifices have been perverted to serve as a means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God, Prophets and Kings 685. So, um, and then they use the word here in the next paragraph. They talk about atone. It says, uh, the death of a creature and not the death of the Creator to atone. Basically, they're talking over and over again about atonement and atone for sin. And uh, we only have a couple of minutes, but uh, as I heard that, I didn't hear it atone as they used it in that paragraph as unity, at one mint. Um, I heard it more as appeasement, as the way it was used there. You read it and tell me what you think, but let me ask you some questions. It talks about um, the, the law of God... Um, could not be atoned for. It says, were Jesus not divine, then God's law would not be as sacred as God himself because the violation of it would be something for which the created being could atone. So it's talking about atoning for the violation of God's law. If a parent tells a child never to use illegal drugs, and as an adolescent, the child's at a party in which the kids bring pills, put them in a bowl, mix them all together, and everybody randomly takes handfuls of pills and eats them, and I don't know if you know, but these parties go on just like that. Exactly. How stupid can they be? They take prescription drugs out of mom and dad's cabinet and they bring them all together, pour them all together in a bowl. Nobody knows what's in there and they just grab pills and take them. And your child is at this party and they do this. And the combination of pills causes loss of consciousness, arrhythmia, seizure, pulmonary edema, swelling and liquid in the lungs. And the child is rushed to the emergency room and is in the ICU on a ventilator. First off, did your child break any laws? Which laws? What, what laws did your child break? Several different types. They, there's, there's illegal for what they did in, in human government, so they, brought, they broke man's laws. Did they break, and Russell said they broke the laws of health. Laws of health were broken. Break the laws and rules of the parents. So, which laws of those laws that were broken were God's laws that were broken, and which laws were man's laws that were broken? If your child did this. What would man's law require? See, breaking man's law requires what? Punishment of some kind. What does breaking God's law require? So we have the broken law that it's illegal to take drugs in the state of Tennessee, and they've done that. Now, what will that broken law require? There's be some appeasement, some payment. Somehow the law has to be taken care of. But we've broken the laws of health, God's law. What will God's law require? Healing. Healing. 
that that child's body be put back in harmony with God's design. That broken law requires the child be healed. Do the laws of health need to be appeased? If you're the parent and your child has broken this law, they're in edema, pulmonary edema, they're on a ventilator, their heart's beating out of arrhythmia, and you want to pay the appeasement of the law so your child can be saved, so you walk into the ICU with a pistol and shoot yourself in the head. Give your life to appease the law. Is that going to help your child? That's exactly what Christianity teaches Christ did. He came down here and killed himself to appease the law, to atone the law. It doesn't help anybody. Or have the doctor killing him. Or have the doctor killing him. Yeah. The child violated the laws of health, and what the child needs is something to be done to heal the child, to put the child back in harmony. When Adam sinned, mankind got put out of harmony with the way God built his his, his uh, creatures to live, the, the principles upon which life was constructed to operate, and Christ came to do that which we could not do for ourselves, which was to restore man back to God's design that we might have life. And I have some quotes I don't have time to get to. One final thing about God's wrath. God will never stop being wrathful. This other view of imposed penalties, Christ took God's wrath and appeases it, assuages it, turns it away. No, a doctor never stops being wrathful at disease. Doctors always hate disease and always will hate disease. God always hates sin and will always hate sin and be wrathful towards it. And here's what that wrath and vengeance looks like. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. How does he get his vengeance? By cleansing us from sin. And then the other text that Jesus quoted, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. What's his vengeance? How does a doctor take vengeance on somebody who is spreading disease? By curing the disease, so the disease has no power. Okay? Christ's vengeance is to cure and heal us from sin. You're saying his life saves us more than his death. His life, death, and resurrection was a complete necessary action for salvation. It was through his death that he destroyed the infection that is killing us and brought life and immortality to light, Second Timothy uh, 2. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth about your nature, your character of love that you have provided evidence. You leave us free to think, and Lord, we are finite. We're all on a journey. We don't know all the answers. We, for all eternity future, we will be studying and probing the depths of, of who you are and learning more every day. But we know one thing for sure, Lord, that you are love and that you love us and that you loved us so much that you uh, together worked a plan to reach down and, and heal us and restore us and save us from this destructive state that we find ourselves in. We open our hearts and ask that your spirit will come and heal and transform and renew us to be like Christ. Give us wisdom and discernment that we can share this good news about about you with others and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.